There's a line in there that says, uh, each man in his time is Cain, until he walks along the beach and sees his future in the water, a long lost heart within his reach. I've had my time of being Cain. Um, I have the one in my life. Um, um, in more ways than one, I have so much to be grateful for. Um, the biggest thing in my life that I'm grateful for is that I don't have to beat myself up. I don't have to lock myself away anymore. I can actually be honest with people. I can say how I'm feeling. Um, I'm still afraid sometimes to be honest, but I'm just getting used to it. I, I just want to function like anybody else. Hello and welcome to the rather delayed 10th episode of the, I guess that's why they call it, the Elton John podcast podcast. We've already had the big announcement. Was that the 24th of January? I think it just told us what we already knew. But now at least we do have a time scale, which sounds like it might just take Elton up to a retirement show in 2020 at the Troubadour on the 50th anniversary. That's an intriguing prospect. There's some other new projects this year as well. There's a couple of re-releases in April. One of them's rumoured to be a reissue of Live in Australia. And apparently we should expect to see the memoirs next year. And the Rocketman film hasn't been entirely forgotten either. And Sherlock Gnomes 2 is very much happening as well. So there's going to be lots of new Elton to talk about. But then again, I'm sure you don't get your Elton John news here. Particularly not when the episodes are coming out monthly. I do plan for more regular episodes than that, by the way. Today's episode, it's almost an anniversary episode. It's been 25 and a half years since The One was released back in June 1992. And it's time for a re-evaluation. I'm going to have a listen through the songs, break them down a bit. Think about how the album was received and how it sits within the rest of Elton's body of work. In interviews promoting the album, just like the one I played at the beginning of the show, Elton was fond of saying that it was him that was Cain in the lyric to The One. I'm sure you know your Bible better than I do. Cain, after killing his brother, found himself in exile, living the life of an unsettled nomad, detached from normal life or however normal life can be when you live in the Garden of Eden and talk to God every other day. Elton as Cain certainly captures what it was like to be him in the 1980s, detached, lonely, confused, as well as being addicted to almost anything you care to mention. There's another reference here as well to the song Tower of Babel, which also brings up the Cain and Abel story, in that song, Bernie is even more direct. He describes Cain living it up in some kind of eternal party time, out there in groupie land, lost in the music industry. Watch them dig their graves, indeed. But of course, Elton did turn into that person. To set the personal context even more, after Elton separated from John Reed, he had a few serious relationships Vance Buck was an American guy that he met in 1978. Gary Clark, an Australian, he was the subject of um, Blue Eyes. I think he met him in the early 80s. And then his wife, Renat Blaul, who he married in 1984. And then another boyfriend, Hugh Williams, who he got together with 
after his divorce in 1988. These weren't very settled relationships, and certainly his transformation into becoming a straight married man, although it was meant to solve all of his problems, unsurprisingly it didn't help him find himself. Let's have a listen to a really spiky-sounding Elton, dressed as an angel, incidentally, on a UK chat show in 1986. Esther Ranson has just asked him whether married life has changed him. Uh, marriage has not changed me in, uh, in the slightest sense. The fact that I'm just much happier. The only thing has changed me. I mean, all that. I was in America recently, and they said that I'd just begun to. We read the headlines. Uh, I think it was Mr. Dempster, wasn't it? Who said that I've been having personal, sort of like both of us. Our marriage was on the rocks, and we've been having sort of like personal sort of conversations with the Duke and Duchess of York. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. She's thrown a sausage at me, your highness. Um, <laughs> it's all over America. Our marriage is fine. It's great. Um, the press over here are just unbelievable. I just can't believe it. Um, are you able to keep some of your private life private? Do you? I always have done it. I mean, there's nothing much you know about me apart from this lot, the glasses, Watford Football Club, sex change. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, yes, I do keep my private life private. I mean, ap apart from what you see in a paper, uh, it's always about like, the hair transplant or whatever. There, you don't really know much about me, and I like to keep is it. Is that what the, all this is for, really, to distract? People. No, it's just, well, in a, in a way, yes, you have to work on mystique, you have to work, I mean, I, this is for fun as well, but also it is a front to keep people's attention. If I didn't have some privacy, I would go completely nuts, and I am a public figure, so I tie an autograph and I do all that and everything like that, and you have to put up with that, but they, you have to have a private life, and I suppose in a way, you probably said that I haven't thought about it like that before. Um, the media really started to turn on Elton after his marriage ended. And by 1988, he started to at least try to take some control over his surroundings. He put his more ridiculous possessions up for sale at Sotheby's, and he took many of his gold records off the wall at Woodside and remodelled it, making it into a real home, in his own words. He said to himself at the time, I'm going to have a human life. It was around about this time that he was made aware of Ryan White, the little boy that became infected with HIV through his treatment for haemophilia in Indiana in the mid-80s. Ryan died in April 1990, and Elton, of course, played a very sensitive skyline pigeon at his funeral. He was still an addict at that point, though. Then, if you think chronologically... Sacrifice went to number one in the UK, his first number one over here, in May of 1990. The profits went to AIDS charities. Elton came off the road in May as well. Then in July, he went into the studio with Don Was. He recorded several songs with Don's musicians. I think the intention was to put together an album. Four of those songs saw the light of day in the compilations The Very Best Of and To Be Continued. They came out in the autumn of 1990. There are apparently up to eight more songs in the vaults. Who knows if we'll ever get to hear those. Then, everything drew to a halt. Elton says this about what came next. This is a familiar quote, this one. My partner at the time was in rehab in Arizona. I knew when I visited what was going to happen. He had a counsellor. I had a counsellor. We faced each other knee to knee. We wrote a list of what we thought was wrong with each other. My list was so puny, like he didn't put his CD covers back in the right place. He said I was a drug addict, 
a bulimic, a sex addict, a food addict, an overeater, an alcoholic. I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. I give in. I surrender. I came out of rehab and you know, it's astonishing when you think of the chain of events. Everything came alive again. The hope, everything, music never left my side. And so, in July of 1990, Elton, spurred on by Hugh, and also by his humbling experience with Ryan White, went into therapy in Chicago as an inpatient. Hugh got a credit from Elton on the To Be Continued and the Very Best Of releases, and the Elton John community has got a great deal to thank him for. Rehab was a massive undertaking for Elton. He took a year away from touring and from recording. Right at the beginning of his rehab, he recorded the MTV Unplugged solo show, the one in the pink shell suit. That was August 1990. It's a loose and fluid performance, well worth seeking out if you haven't seen it in a while. Later on, if you look on YouTube, you can find some intriguing videos of him in December 1990, playing a cover of Sweet Home Alabama, among other things, with his therapist's band in Guernsey. Next, he popped up at Wembley Stadium, April Fool's Day 1991, in drag as Sharon, sitting on Rod Stewart's knee, serving him brandy from a silver tray and duetting with him on You're In My Heart. Unfortunately, I don't have a recording of that one. The newly cleaned up Elton invited Gary Clark out on holiday with him and his new boyfriend sometime in 1991. By the time Elton resurfaced, he'd lost a ton of weight. He got himself a pretty decent hair weave done, which at least changed the topic of conversation with the press. And it was time for him to venture back into the studios. He went to Air Studios in London in July of 1991. This was meant as a warm-up for the album proper. A couple of tracks were recorded. Suit of Wolves, which turned up as the B-side of The One, and Understanding Women, which of course ended up on the album. Both of these were included on the UK version of To Be Continued, which came out in November 1991. Like the rest of the album that would follow, these songs were produced by Chris Thomas. Chris first worked with Elton back in 1969, producing the Bread and Beer Band Sessions, an obscure DJM project that didn't come to very much. Of course, he worked with the Beatles. He worked with the Sex Pistols, among many others. And this was the seventh of nine albums that Chris produced for Elton. So this is how Elton found his feet again in the studio. And it makes sense to start with the songs that came out of that first session. Here, then, is Suit of Wolves. This someone brings who some just want And those who like to see me dead I come and feel so right I 
Like that song, it's got key changes. Here, it's a really obvious key change. It goes up from B flat in the verse, steps to C in the chorus. It's a good, resounding effect. A decent song. It probably would have found its way onto the album if it wasn't so reminiscent of The One. Elton also said that he was trying to avoid poppy songs on the album, and maybe this falls into that category. I wonder who it is that's howling like a wolf in the background towards the end of the song. Lyrically, we're a long way away from Bernie writing about Elton's rebirth, which is the focus of the first half of the album that they were yet to write. Suit of Wolves has got a good set of lyrics and a marvellous title. Bernie works titles first. He must have been very proud of this one. It's a going out on the pull type song. Not a million miles away from Saturday Night's All Right, although without that thread of violence that Saturday Night's got, Elton gives it a much more sensitive treatment maybe than it deserves. It might have been a bit more sensible to make this into a rocker, maybe. When you look at the songs that they recorded with Don Was, it does seem as though Bernie had a bit of a theme for that album that never was. Basically, they were mostly songs about the dynamics of proper adult relationships and looking at them from all sorts of different angles. You've got Made For Me, which was a devotional, obsessed love song. You've Got to Love Someone is about exactly what it says it is. It's how life is better when it's shared with someone else. I swear I heard the night talking is about love in the shadows. Infidelity, possibly. Easier to walk away is about being cheated on and choosing to make the break. And it isn't too much of a stretch to think that Suit of Wolves might have come out of that batch of lyrics, and indeed, that it might even have been already attempted with Don Was. Here's the other track now that came out of that warm up session Understanding Women.
This lyric maybe also came out of that batch of songs with Don Was. It's a really strong set of lyrics. The idea might be a bit thin, that whole two guys talking to each other saying, oh, women, fuh, can't live with them, can't live without them, that sort of thing. But there are lines in here like, I could drive to Mexico on understanding women, throw myself against the waves and answer up to heaven. That's top draw Bernie right there. Musically, it sounds like 1991. It's got that programmed clinical feel to the bass and the drums and the keyboards. It isn't a million miles away from sounding like something off of Michael Jackson's Dangerous, which was recorded at around the same time. It's interesting that Ollie Romo got a credit for Runaway Train, but not for this one, where, if you ask me, the programming is even more central to the arrangement. That intro, which also comes back as a kind of refrain, it's a bluesy idea, but it's not like your typical rolling wagon type blues. It's too fast and even, and it clatters and spins around all metallic, like an alien spacecraft almost. And then when you step onto the verse, the effect is quite dizzying. The verse is like a descending bit of funeral music, drops from G minor to D major. And you've got a simple vocal melody going over the top, but it all holds together in a dramatic and cool manner. And then when you backing vocals come in with the ooh, and the title line is sung, you've got your song. Later on, a rather rare thing for Elton, a bridge, which is when the acoustic drums kick in. Then the spacey David Gilmore guitar solo. There's so much to love here. It's always been my favourite song from the album. Just like the wolf sounds, there's a bit of literal sound effects going on here, namely the waves, which we can hear right at the beginning of the first verse and also when the word waves itself is mentioned there's also some crunching backwards drums here they are in center extraction i really should get on with this or this is going to be a very long show We've reached the album sessions proper. They took place between November 91 and March 92 in Studio Guillaume Tell in Paris. The live room there is enormous. The building used to be a theatre and it's still got the stage, the curtains, the gilding and a massive chandelier to top it all off. It might even have intimidated Elton a little bit for what was his first stint at writing and recording sober in around 20 years. In the Rocketman book, it says, unattributed mind, on the first day, the pressures overcame him and he left frustrated after 20 minutes. He returned a day later and began to write and work. And then this is what Elton has to say about it. I went to Paris to make The One and it was a strange experience. I was used to making records under the haze of alcohol or drugs, and here I was, 100% sober, so it was tough. Bernie didn't write his lyrics in person this time, they were mostly sent by fax. Since we've got no way of knowing what order the songs were recorded in, it makes sense to follow the theme I've already identified. 
Starting off then with When a Woman Doesn't Want You. This isn't much of an album highlight for me, lyrically, it's lacking. Yes, get consent before you try to have sex with a woman. Why does this need to be written as a song? Maybe Bernie felt he needed to write something like this to counter all those accusations he's had over the years of being a misogynist in his lyrics. It's such a statement of the bleeding obvious though. It feels like it almost had to be written as part of someone's bail conditions. At least Bernie sounds like he believes what he's saying, which is about all we can ask for. Elton matches it with a pretty gospel-type tune. It's uh, an Americana-flavoured waltz with a fairly organic feel. It's got authentic organ sounds, guitar and piano, all pitted against an insanely loud snare drum. In the second verse, the effect is ruined by a syrupy synth part. Once again, like in Understanding Women, there's a bridge, a really strong bridge this time. I like the verse, it's got some lovely, sweet hanging moments, but I don't think the chorus does much for the song. It just feels a bit workmanlike to me. I prefer House from Made in England which doesn't actually have a chorus when it comes to songs of this ilk. Here's another rather straightforward song about a relationship gone wrong. It's On Dark Street.
Again, this is not one of Bernie's stronger lyrics. His interpreting a relationship as a car journey. Not the most original set of images. Maybe this one came out of the Don Was batch as well. As well as being a bit of a lyrical hangover from earlier times, this one musically sounds straight off of Sleeping With The Past. It sounds a bit like the Phil Collins version of Can't Hurry Love. It's plastic, white boy soul. I really like this song. It's got that wonderfully dynamic phrasing in the vocals and the pre-chorus. That cute little We're Lost Bay Bay vocal at the end of the chorus and those perfect backing vocals by Kiki D and Nigel Olsen, no less, the same team actually as on When A Woman. It's catchy enough to be a single in the vein of Club At The End Of The Street and it's certainly worth its place on the album but boy would it have sounded better with real strings and horns and without those weird isolated cymbal crashes here and there they sound terrible it's a shame the good song underlying all of that it's probably worth mentioning another song fat boys and ugly girls at this moment it was a b-side of the one single I guess it's about relationships of one kind or another. I've no idea what Bernie was thinking with this one. You'll be pleased to know that I'm going to pass it over entirely and move straight on to the main body of the album, the songs which, to some degree or another, talk about Elton's rehabilitation. There are three of them, and they're all on side one of the album. In sequence, then, the first up, is Simple Life. I've messed around with this one a bit. I've taken it into a centre extraction, like in episode one of this podcast, and then back into the full stereo mix for the chorus. Interesting to hear the reverb on Elton's voice and also what are presumably Davies guitars, although there's another guitarist on this album as well, a guy called Adam Seymour. He worked with the Pretenders, just like Ollie Romo and Chris Thomas did. Whoever it is, that guitar's got a really lovely twang to it. The centre extraction also highlights the backwards drums quite nicely. 
Elton's credited throughout this album as being on keyboards and vocals. I think in this case, though, it's an acoustic piano. It certainly has a warm enough tone. Again, we've got that monstrously large snare sound, particularly at the end where it just gets silly. I'm not much of a fan of the programmed backing track, but I can deal with it. Simple Life is a work song. It's a chugging, large piece of music. And I guess the backing track helps to get that message across. The real problem that I have with this song is with the synthesized harmonica. It's the same old story. Why not have an actual harmonica? It just sounds cheap and fake. It completely takes me out of the song. In terms of Elton's writing on this song, it's not particularly out there, but it's a strong opener to the album, a statement of intent. Lyrically, the song is about Elton's work ethic, about his career in general. It's Bernie at his best. He starts the song by plonking us down on a familiar looking runway and telling us that the timeless flight of our rocket man has been cancelled. He describes the organisation around Elton as a massive city that's spread around him like cannon fire. This city shares a heart with Elton, a heart that's beating like hammered steel. For Elton, no matter what, the big wheel keeps on turning. He can't cut the ties. Indeed, the show must go on, as Elton sang, of course, during the tour behind this album. And so, if the show must go on, he can at least get some control over it. The fight for freedom, pride and self-determination is not over. He will have to fight to the bitter end. This is about recovery from addiction, of course. The addict is, as they say, always in recovery. Elton says that even nowadays he dreams that he's taking coke and wakes up in a panic about it. Only when his last breath is taken will the fight be over. Only then will he be able to walk proud after midnight or after death. Bernie knows that Elton will never stop his manic work ethic. So he tries in this song to give him a code to live by. How to tackle life sober. The simple life comes after death. What it is isn't particularly important. It's how you find it. It's about the journey. It's about knuckling down, finding some inner strength, some meaning. Fighting for yourself, for your reputation and for your place in the world. And it's about knowing that that fight will never end. I'd still love to know what hard behind the eight means. Elton says this about his sober life. Sobriety allows you to let things go. I've had so many things happen to me in sobriety that normally would have freaked me out. The turmoil of having to break up with my manager, having money stolen, stuff like that. Sobriety lets you focus on the now and not the past. And I've never had any regrets. Since I got sober, nothing bad has happened to me. Things happen, you fall out with people, but I've been given the tools to deal with it. Simple Life was released as a single, but it 
didn't trouble the mainstream UK or USA charts. It did get to number one on the Billboard Adult Contemporary chart. The single edit is actually a very different mix. It's faster in tempo. It's got a lighter sound. It's got more dancey drums. Not as much heavy synthesized bass. And it was cut down as well from a fairly flabby six and a half minutes down to a much leaner five minutes um that's one that we'll listen to on a forthcoming show i'm sure next here's the second personal song from the album it's the one there are caravans we follow drunken nights and dark hotels When chances breathe between the silence Where sex and love no longer gel For each man in his time is came You may have realised from the snippets that I choose to play that I'm a bit of a second verse man. This one has a perfect second verse from every angle. It's like the music holds its breath between the choruses, so cold and mystical. You're there with Elton out in the freezing mist. Lyrically, it's brilliant. Even the production is pretty good with that icy reverb all over the vocal. The solo, which I just talked over, is an interesting one. It follows the chords from the verse, but it sounds completely different somehow. It's a very worked out thing. It reminds me a bit of the solo from Nikita, and with the same bassist doing his fretless thing in the background, the effect is almost complete. The lyrics stand out in the song above all else. This is the best mystical love song I've ever heard. In the first verse is the beauty of the unknown. Dancing out the ocean comes a spirit of earth, water and fire. It runs along the sand. This verse offers the promise, the dream. Verse 2 deals with the reality of life. For Elton, the debauchery, the lovelessness, the loneliness. Twice in the album, the idea of seeing your reflection in the water is raised by Bernie here and later in the face of the in the river from the north you catch an image of yourself and you don't like what you see the chorus reminds him again what there is to fight for the chance to make an honest connection with another person what a gift this lyric was to Elton <laughs> 
Elton's really smart in the way he sets these lyrics. Halfway through the verse comes the line, in the instant that you love someone, and halfway through the second verse you've got, for each man in his time is Cain. Both of these are big moments of realisation in the lyrics. And musically, Elton marks them. At that point, he springs up to the actual home key, B-flat. Up until then, the intro and the first half of the verse have been in this tentative C major, which is handled in a really unsettled manner. The parallel with Elton Lost and Elton Found is obvious, but Elton had to notice this and write it. That wandering tonality at the beginning of the verse reminds me of Cold as Christmas, which is another strong favourite of mine. There are so many incredible moments in this song. You've got the, the double vocal in reality runs up your spine, which makes for a true shiver down the spine. There's the guitar swoop just before the When Stars Collide line. It sounds like a spaceship changing course. Seemingly throwaway lyrics like When Chances Breathe Between the Silence are so poetic and clever. And then rounding it all off with those final piano notes in the fade out, those notes are perfect. The song is packed with special moments like these. And in the end, it's just so singable. The chorus is an obvious hit. Elton must have been overjoyed when he wrote this song. And it was a big hit, of course. Number 10 in the UK, number 9 in the USA. The single edit shaves about 15 seconds of atmosphere from the introduction, and then it loses the last minute of outro. Let's skip a song in the album sequence. Here's Runaway Train. Bernie says that he wrote this specifically as a duet for Elton and Eric. He says that a lot of it has to do with the pain of losing. That sort of ties in with both Elton and Eric. There's a redemptional quality about it. They've both been through the mill and come back stronger than ever. Clapton's young son only died in March 1991. So this would have been a difficult lyric for Bernie to write and difficult as well for Eric to sing. Throughout, Bernie uses vehicles and motors as a metaphor for driving on through the things that uh, hit you in life. The verses seem to be specifically tailored to the man that sings them. Elton's verse is about work, 
the hungry road ahead that he hopes will eat up his empty insides. Elton, the drifting spirit, is coming clean in the eye of a lifelong fire of ambition, and he will be dressed and ready for work on Monday morning. This is much the same lyric as we have in Simple Life. For Eric, things are a lot darker. I've lost and seen the world shut down. It's a darkness no one knows. He's found his way home, but he's marked inside in his veins with red dye. Presumably, Bernie's alluding to the red dye that's used in the UK to indicate that a certain kind of diesel is intended only for agricultural use. These are some of Bernie's best lyrics on this album, but they're oblique. I don't know enough about Eric to be able to interpret them, but the imagery is astounding. In the chorus, he talks about alcohol being used as a crutch. I've poured out the pleasure and dealt with the pain. Life has changed, life hits hard, but time has passed and now is the time to move on. From Elton, this is a straightforward gospel number with a choir coming in for the choruses it's a shame we don't hear this choir in simple life the verses in g minor and the chorus is uplifting in the relative major key of b flat major eric's voice comes in sounding so fresh it lets the song breathe a bit otherwise what's going on behind them is the intense dense driving instrumental track programmed by ollie romo and it sounds a bit turgid to me. I personally find all the guitar noodling a little bit indulgent and grinding. I'd like to hear some piano on here instead of the organ solo, although it is interesting to hear Elton on the organ. All in all, this song's a bit of a miss for me. I like the lyrics. It was released as a single, but it didn't make an impact on either side of the Atlantic. Right, since I've mentioned it already, here's the first song of side two of the record, The North. chose this as one of his My Life in 20 Songs songs for Rolling Stone and he called it his favourite from the album. It's a sneaky tune. The first half is full of even, simple, descending chords in the key of G. It's a pretty Elton verse in terms of the melody but it's pretty unremarkable as well. It's a full two and a half minutes, two and a quarter actually minutes until the chorus comes in. 
in G minor now in a swirly unresolved manner the chords and the melody line wander around in a rather un-Elton like manner at the end of the chorus when Elton is singing there's a north in us all but my north can't hold me anymore he flashes from G to C to E flat to B flat to F and then to C before coming back to G for the instrumental verse these are fifths and the effect of fifth after fifth then all fifths but at the end it's really unsettling it's like the sound of someone turning around at a set of crossroads unsure of which way to go there's nothing particularly surprising in the instrumentation there's a melodic keyboard sound in the first half of the chorus and some extremely high for the period backing vocals from Elton in the driven rain part as well as some odd furniture moving type noises at the end here have a listen in center extraction This is more Bernie than Elton in the vein of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Honky Cat and I suppose Home Again. It's a song about leaving the farm. But with There's a North in Us All, Bernie seems to be applying this one to us and to Elton as well, saying that it's okay to move on and to not look back and your experiences may have put you on a certain track, but they don't need to define who you are However, it's not the most positive lyric. It's not a very positive sounding song. It deals in the harsh realities of life. Speaking of harsh realities, it's time to move away from the love songs, away from the personal songs, and on to a song about the drudgeries of life in the 1980s, Sweat It Out. workers in the late 1960s had Can I Put You On, the people who lived in the shadow of the shuttered factories of the 1980s have got sweated out. I don't really know what to make of these lyrics. It's a bit much to have Elton almost rapping 
about war, hunger, ecological damage, tears for fears, banking reform, highwaymen, homelessness and Thatcher, it doesn't quite ring true. The sound of the thing is interesting, which is undoubtedly how it ended up being the third song on the album. The backing track is really heavily programmed with all sorts of reverb on top throughout. A huge amount of effort went into getting this song sounding the way it does. Listen to this load of old noise coming out of the first chorus. To me, this is the most dangerous sounding moment of the album. It's a product of its era, this song, and it's like nothing else in the Elton John catalogue. Of course, the most exciting thing about it is the piano solo, which Elton says he made up on the spot first take. absolutely mind-blowing full of strange strange decisions it harkens back to the tonality of some of the madman across the water solos that he used to do back in the day and it completely makes this song and this episode would have been all the worse without it i had to include it there are only three songs left on the album and they don't have much in common with each other so almost at random here's emily Emily's a great tune, but perhaps what Elton wrote is a little bit light for the lyrics. It's interesting how similar all of the programming is to Simple Life. You can see why they put the songs either side of the album. (laughs) 
lyrically, Bernie's done a nice enough character study, obviously heavily indebted to Eleanor Rigby, with some decorative touches. The music, as I say, doesn't fit fantastically, but there are some interesting twists and turns in the chorus. My favourite bit, the bit I played, is where the drama builds at the end with the Emily vocal. The bells are good, or at least the synthesised bells. As a song, it works, but I'm just not quite sure why it works. Right, here's another thing entirely. Whitewash County. This song is about a white supremacist from the USA called David Duke. Bernie talks about his plastic surgery, lines like he's got a shiny new wax face and you've changed your face so often but you never change your mind and also about his political ambitions. He swears the South's going to rise again soon all over the place. David Duke came to the public's attention in 1988 when he put himself forward as a presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. He became a member of the Louisiana House of Representatives from 1989 to 1992 for the Republican Party. Lyrically, this song nods to One Horse Town. We've got the fiddle scratching some lazy new tune. We're just some place that history passed. New dust, new broom. And it shares its cynical tone with religion from Too Low for Zero. Musically, it's not far off religion either. It's great to have a country song on the album again. There hasn't been one of those since religion, I don't think. I'm not sure what heavy traffic was. It does have a light, amusing sound and it breaks the album up, but it's overlong and not much happens. It's not a classic by any means. The piano in the outro is decent, though. It sounds like something he might have done on Rock of the Westies. Now I've reached the last song. The last song. Things we never said Come together The hidden truth No longer haunting me Tonight we touched on things that were never spoken That kind of understanding sets me free Cause I never thought I'd lose I only thought I'd win I never dreamed I'd feel my skin, I can't believe you love 
and misjudged love between a father and his son. This was the first single whose proceeds went to Elton's AIDS Foundation in the USA. Elton said, I was crying all the time as I wrote the music and it was very hard for me to sing it. It was originally going to be called Song for 1992, but they renamed it so as not to date it. It's about a father coming to terms with the sexuality of his son, who's dying of an AIDS-related illness. It's got some classic Bernie images. I weigh less than the shadow on the wall. And of course, as light as straw and brittle as a bird. I never thought I'd lose seems to be written to break Elton's heart. How lucky he was to stay healthy through the 80s. It must have been very difficult for him to sing. With the memory of so many friends that he'd lost to AIDS or who were unwell. Freddie Mercury died in November of 1991. The album was dedicated to Vance Buck, who Elton had reconnected with during the process of therapy. And Vance died just after the album was released in July 1992. Musically, it's simple. It lurches around a bit. It's a restrained, folky song in some places, but it reaches a a Disney-like level of intensity at other times. The good bits are very good. Like the way I like the way he sings "Fire Beneath My Skin." There's so much emotion in it; you can't help but to be touched by it. And it's a fine ending to a fine album. It's just Elton on piano and Guy Bab on on keyboards I'm left wondering how much better this song could have been with a Paul Buckmaster arrangement but Elton fans would have to wait for another album for that to happen so that's the last of the songs on the album all in all not bad at all considering everything that was going on I think there are four corkers on here understanding women simple life the one and the north The next bunch are pretty good, but they have their issues. I'd name Emily, Sweated Out, On Dark Street, and the last song. And I'd have to say a reluctant no to Runaway Train, When a Woman Doesn't Want You, and Whitewash County. It's a long album, 58 minutes, more than five minutes per song. Some of those songs do overstay their welcome. The production really hampers the album. Songs that could be great, like On Dark Street and even Whitewash County, they just sound flat these days without having proper authentic instruments in them. They probably sounded very flat when it came out as well. I wasn't bowled over with the sound of the album in 92. The programme drums really date the album as well and they are a bit samey. The synth pads wash quite a lot of emotion out of the songs Bernie and Elton do all they can though especially Bernie who's got some career best moments on this album Elton's vocals are probably better than they were at any other point in his career they're fantastic lots of the songs come together extremely well all in all I'd rate this album 7 out of 10 The actual reviews were mixed. Here are some highlights. Entertainment Weekly gave it a B 
and said that the lyrics of the last song convey a heartbreaking desolation that the syrupy melody can't. The Chicago Tribune gave it three out of four and said it was an album that Bruce Hornsby could envy. The LA Times gave it three and a half out of five and said that although the song The One overreaches for grandeur in lyric and production, the album succeeds with vignettes of people in turmoil. Almost everything here is first rate and they particularly singled out When a Woman Doesn't Want You for Praise. Q gave it three out of five, but unfortunately I don't have their review or anything else from any other UK publication. Robert Christogu gave it a C plus and calls Elton an automaton and a floundering has-been. His favourite was Sweated Out. Rolling Stone gave it two out of five, calling Elton a bankable rocker and saying that his audience is not looking for stinging creativity. They call the album the musical equivalent of comfort food and they take issue with the production. There's so much echo that emotion dissolves into oblivion. Despite some of these reviews, the album did really well. It sold more than 2 million in the USA alone and it got to number 2 in the UK album chart, number 8 in the USA. Compare that with Sleeping With The Past. That sold a million and got to number 23 in the USA. Compare it with Made In... England has also sold about a million and got to number 13 in the USA. All in all, it was a high watermark for Elton in that period. Four singles came off the album. Only the one really made anything of a dent in the mainstream US singles charts. Much as Bernie had predicted, Elton worked tirelessly to promote the album. The tour ran to 154 shows in 24 countries from May the 26th, 92 in Oslo, Norway to June the 20th, 1993 in Istanbul, Turkey. Versace designed Elton on the band's stage wear for the tour, as well as the stage itself. And of course, he also designed the uh, album's distinctive cover. There were seven double bill concerts with Eric Clapton. In fact, I saw one of these at Wembley Stadium when I was 14. The sound was terrible. The only song that's stuck around in Elton's set since has been The One, which he's played an impressive 537 times, most recently in October 2016. Although it was dropped for most of the 2000s, he's played Simple Life 184 times, most recently in December 1998, and the last song 178 times, most recently in 1999. Apart from that, very little was played from the album the north was played a dozen times runaway train eight times and when a woman doesn't want you in whitewash county were both played twice okay at last it's time to bring this monster of an episode to an end here's the first song of the album to be played live it's the north which elton played solo at the d murray benefit on the 15th of march 1992 in nashville This was just as the sessions for the album had come to an end. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon. Drop me a line on eltonpodcast at gmail.com if you've got anything you want to say. Here's The North.
I know.